Right, I'm going to apologise in advance, people. I am rather full of cold, and uh, I think <coughs> my sermon makes sense. I was writing it when I was very full of cold, so we'll work on it together when my Kindle gets there. Um, it's been a busy week, and if most of you may or may not know that my daughter got married um, on the 27th, so any of you that haven't seen photos that would like photos, uh, see me afterwards and I've got pictures. Um, my Kindle is taking its time to wake up, which is about normal, so uh, let's just uh, have a few moments of prayer and then hopefully it'll catch up. Oh, Father God, uh, thank you for the privilege of being able to, to bring your word to, to us all here. Pray that you might use me to just to reach out and speak to to your congregation and your family here, and may everything I say be from you. Amen. Right, there we go. So, the Christmas story, it's fascinating. There are angels, magi, shepherds, a virgin girl pregnant with the Son of God, and it doesn't get any better than this real-life story. Woven into the story of Christmas, there is so much heavenly information. There's prophecy fulfilled, prophecy yet to be fulfilled. There are spiritual principles and spiritual truths. Wise men and women continue to study this as event as God's revelation to man. And this morning, I want to take another look at the event of the Magi visiting Christ, the Christ child. So if you're following in Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 2, um, pretty much verses 1 to 12, or if it's on the phone feel free, but I'll read it out for you anyway. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. What do you call a group of guys who follow a star, thinking it will somehow lead them to a newborn king? We call them wise men. Of course, we know that if it had been wise women, things would have been different. They would have asked for directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and bought practical gifts. 
but seriously. Let me get you up to speed on the Magi. So the Magi were also referred to as wise men or kings or the kings from the east, and they're a group of distinguished foreigners who visited Jesus after his birth. We don't know that the wise men were three in number. They were probably not kings, and they did not come from as far away as the Orient, i.e. the Far East. The East has previously been identified as any country from Arabia and Babylonia to Media and Persia, both in modern Iran, but no further East. They, the Magi were an ancient priestly caste among the Babylonians and Medo-Persians, and these priest sages were extremely well-educated for their day. They were experts in religion, history, medicine, astronomy, astrology, divination, and magic. The Greek of the New Testament, when translated, simply calls them Magi from the East. And the term Magi is usually translated as magicians, uh, wise men or astrologers. And they had gifts of gold, myrrh, and frankincense. And that's how we get three wise men. Some people assume three gifts, three magi, but we really don't actually know how many there were. And visiting on the night of his birth, again, there's a little bit of leeway there. It's not really likely in reality. They came to a house, not a manger, as in Luke. And I'm told that the Greek word for child here is different from the word for a newborn. And then as for the names of the magi... They date back to about the 6th century, but no earlier. Um, and again, they're just sort of tradition. There are no names actually given in scripture. But let's look at the things that we can learn from this story of the wise men. And the first thing I thought was, a wise man's journey is one of faith. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. That was the question they were asking. And what would prompt someone to leave the comfort of their home to go on a dangerous journey? Romance? Yeah. Wealth? Definitely. But faith? Yes, faith. What a probing question. Where is he who's been born King of the Jews? There's no doubt in their language that he had been born. The question is, where is he? They'd seen the star. The evidence was real. Now, where is he? They had faith that he was alive, that he existed, and now all they needed to do was find him. Their purpose was established, find him. So they were willing to risk everything to find him. They were willing to leave the safety of their homes to risk a perilous journey to seek a king. Could you imagine their neighbour's reaction? Are you going on a journey? Uh, yes. Where are you going? We don't know for sure. How far is it? We don't know that either. Well, how long are you going to be gone? Well, we're not quite sure on that either. Boy, for wise men, you guys sure don't know a lot, do you? But you know, the same thing must have been said to Abraham when he left his home for the promised land. They must have said the same things to Noah, who was building the ark, even though it had never rained in the history of the earth up until that point. They must have said the same things to Peter, Andrew, John, and James when they left the fishing nets to become fishers of men. Are you crazy? Are you insane? Out of your minds? No, not crazy, not insane, not out of their minds, men of faith. God's journeys always involve faith. In Hebrews 11, it says, 
But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. Christianity is a walk of faith. The wise men didn't have a lot of information in front of them. Though there was evidence in the scripture and the star itself, there was no 100% proof that they would find the king they were looking for, but they believed. We see evidence of this in their journey, and also in verse 2, when they ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They believed that Jesus is the king of the Jews and that this star would lead them to him. They were not the only ones to see the star, but most people ignored it while they took action. They had faith that it was a sign from God announcing the birth of Christ. And they seemed to know some of the scriptures and what the prophets had said about him and believed. And this belief led to action. They were willing to sacrifice comfort and security to see and worship him. They were willing to face the ridicule of their friends. They were willing to leave their home and their places of comfort. And it would also seem that they were willing to forgo their means of making money for this period of time. Not only were they not paid, they bought expensive gifts with them. Why? Because of faith. And the second thing I want to say is, a wise man's journey is one of faith. The gold they bought with them represents wealth. It's a gift that's fit for a king, and Jesus is the king of kings. Frankincense was the sap of a tree that's dried and hardened and used as incense to worship God. And thus we can see a gift for his deity. Jesus is the son of God. Myrrh is a fragrant perfume that was used to anoint the dead, to embalm and preserve them, and a foretelling of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. But there's more to worship than gold, frankincense, or myrrh. Worship always involves sacrifice. Was there a price to be paid for the wise men's worship? They'd given themselves to a journey. Travel in those days was not very comfortable. In fact, it could be downright dangerous. The wise men sacrificed their own comfort to find the king and worship him. Listen to what David had said about sacrifice in Samuel. I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Yes, their journey was a journey of worship. Verse 11 says to us, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. <coughs> then opening their treasures... They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, of myrrh. After a long journey, they finally arrived. Their action was very simple. They fell to the ground and worshipped. What a great response. 
Jesus, the God-man, deserved that worship. Philippians 2 says that one day every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. The wise men were the very first in recorded history to do so. No one told them to. No one made them. They chose to worship him, and they would be the first of many. To worship, truly worship, requires sacrifice. The greatest gift, the greatest sacrifice you can give to God is yourself. You can bow down and worship him. You can acknowledge, admit, and claim he is Lord. He is the Son of God, and you can worship him because he is the author of all creation. You worship him because he came into this world for you and me. For a period of time, heaven lost and we gained. Christ came into this world as a person for you and me. To bring us forgiveness, to give us hope, to give us a future, to give us mercy and love and power and strength. He came for us and our response should be to worship. But without sacrifice, our attempts at worship are meaningless and empty. Without sacrifice, there is no worship. Is our worship costly today? Do we make any sacrifices in our worship? In other countries, people are putting their lives on the line by gathering for worship, risking ostracism from families, risking their jobs, their livelihoods, or even in some cases, their lives. Here in the UK, just attending worship's no big deal, although I'm sure there are some exceptions. But it may just be considered outdated, but there's no major risk, no major cost, no sacrifice just to attend worship. We're all living fairly close to our church, so there's no major investment of our time to get here. And there are some who spend more time preparing, you know, our wonderful musicians and service leaders, uh, the prayer ministry team are examples, but generally we don't give as much as we can. Worship needs to be costly or it isn't worship. Worship was costly to the Magi, both in time and treasure. We don't know how far they came, but it, their journey may have covered a thousand miles and taken four to five months, led by a moving and reappearing star to get to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, at a time when the mode of tra travel was on a camel or horse. The gifts were costly, gold, incense, myrrh, all valuable in trade. And without going too deeply into the idea of stewardship, the question at hand is, what is the most valued commodity in your life? Where do you pour your love and affection? As Matthew says later on in his gospel, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Do you regularly give to God your first and best? Does he get first dibs on your time, money and words? He is worthy of the first and best. I think Matthew included this to show us that worship must include the give, giving of our possessions, our money. Is it time to reassess our giving? I know Gina would say we should give this some thought as we go into the new year Maybe it's time to reflect over the next few days and alter our standing orders or our giving to the church. The efforts you make to worship God is your sacrifice to him. But there's a fact I want you all to remember today. 
What God wants most of all, above everything else, is you and me. He wants your heart. He wants your attention. And the question to ask is, what am I willing to give him? Am I willing to give him my best? Am I willing to give up my comfort zone to follow Christ? The wise men were. Are we? We need to remember the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, by treasuring God, by prizing God, by enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in the service, in serving others for the sake of Christ. So what does all this mean to us today? Why should we care some 2,000 years later that two or three or ten wise men came and visited Jesus after his birth? What difference does it make? Why is it important enough for Matthew to include this in his account of Jesus' life? This visit was of great significance for later Christianity. The wise men were pagans, not Hebrews. And the fact that the gentle, Gentile magi performed the same adoration as Jewish shepherds symbolized the universal outreach for the future Christianity. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah foretold this. Hang on, bear with me. Momentous event. Nations, Gentiles, shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn, he says. <coughs> and so they have, since Gentiles today comprise the overwhelming majority of Christians. The Magi were our representatives at the Nativity. Maybe they read Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Although these Magi were Gentiles, the fulfillment of God's promise to the prophets and Abraham greatly interested them. The light they saw in the baby at Bethlehem pierced the darkness of their paganism, just as the light of the world can illuminate the darkness of sin, ignorance, fanaticism and terrorism surrounding us today. Perhaps they'd read the Old Testament prophecy in Numbers that says a star will come out of Jacob a scepter will rise out of Israel. One thing is for certain, they followed the star in the hopes that it would lead to truth. And when they re the star led them to Jesus, they realized their search for truth <coughs> had paid off. But it's one thing to know God's leading, it's something else to follow it. And too often we hear God's calling without following Someone may be here this morning who's lived their whole life thinking that being good enough is the way to heaven and God. But did you know that the Bible says a man is justified by faith apart from the law, by believing in the name of Jesus, God's only son, and trusting in his death on Calvary's cross, we are freely forgiven and saved. 
You see, God is the solid footing for the hope of salvation rather than simply trying to be good enough. I don't know about you, but when was the last time you looked at yourself and admitted you weren't the person God wants you to be? So you stopped and decided, with his help, you would change who you are. We should be awestruck to claim we know Jesus, but does he know us? Does he know me? And the final point I want to make this morning is a wise man's journey is one of change. It says in verse 12, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Isn't it interesting that after they worshipped Jesus, they could not go back the same way they'd come? And I find that to be true today. An encounter with God changes things. It changes you. The fact that they went home by another way, apart from being warned by God, it signifies they were profoundly changed. Whatever they had believed or revered, whatever philosophies they'd possessed, all was transformed by seeking Jesus and by humbling themselves in his presence. This is a picture of wise leadership. God can use men and women who respond likewise. And when we seek Jesus, humble ourselves in his presence and drink in all the joy and the beauty of who he is, he can use us. That's what happens when we walk into the presence of God. We become changed. It's what happened to the wise men when they encountered Christ. They were changed. Gifts communicate how much a person matters to us. To give sacrificially takes us beyond mere lip service to expressing an allegiance that costs us something. But of course, Jesus doesn't need anything from us. As king, we can give him our obedience and service. As our high priest and God, we can bring him our worship. The myrrh, by contrast, represents his gift to us. And every advent, when we hear the narrative of the wise men, we realize they were wise because they had faith. They were wise because they worshipped and they were changed forever, all because of a child. How about you? Are you looking for a change in your life? Find Christ and I guarantee that you will be changed. Things will be different. Step out in faith and seek him as the wise men did. He freely gave his life as an act of pure mercy to make us right with God. In response, our greatest gift to him is to live for him, to be changed and bettered because we have encountered Christ. Amen. Now, can I ask you all, if you're able to stand, um, just to stand and to close your eyes, because I feel that we need to respond to um, what God's been talking to us today. And as we think of the wise men and their response to Jesus, let's think of how we will respond to Jesus today. Do we need to make changes in our lives, in our worship? Have we yet to meet the King of Kings for ourselves? Do we want to open our hearts to his love? If, if this is you, please open your hands in front of you 
while I pray. Lord Jesus, who came to earth in humility to save humanity, meet with us today. Open our hearts and minds and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us the strength to change, your wisdom to know how to change, and the determination to follow through. May we be wise like the men who sought you out so long ago, and do so ourselves today and in the weeks to come. Amen. Do be seated.